Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. We are going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 today. Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, we're going to start uh, right around verse 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and pull those out. And uh, Ephesians is in the New Testament, so go to the middle of the Bible, take a hard right. Uh, you're going to get to eventually Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, Acts, Romans, Corinthians. There's, there's multiple of those. Uh, and, uh, and then you get into Galatians. Ephesians is next. Ephesians chapter Two. So as you're headed there, um, let me give a little bit of uh, framework, set up what we're going to be talking about today and for the next few weeks. So until last week, it had been over six months since any part of our, of our church family could gather together in person. And even now, as we're doing this online service, many of us are still in our houses due to this pandemic um, and, um, and, and being responsible and safe in the midst of that as well. And so as we have started to gather back together at least some portion of our body in public worship, we thought that it would be a good time for us to explore what is the nature of the church? Who, who is the church? What is the church supposed to be and do? Because most of the time when we say the word church, we think of one of the more public aspects of our life together. And whether that's, whether that's going to church on a Sunday morning, and so we think of a service, or whether that's a, I'm going to the church, going to a building or structure of some sort. Those are, those are the most public and physical parts of who we are. And we have been robbed of those things over the course of, of this year. And that continues still for many of us as well. And so as we're starting to slowly regain some of that more public side of who we are, we want to look at what is it, what is it that, although those things had been taken away for us for a number of months, what, what has remained? What is, what is the, what is the, uh, what is the the uh, the identity uh, and the the future and the purpose of the church? These are questions of what is called ecclesiology. Ecclesiology. That's just a fancy word for our understanding of the nature and the purpose and makeup of the church. So. What we are going to be doing over the course of the next few weeks is looking into the book of Ephesians. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul opens up, Paul's the one who wrote this, uh, this letter to the Ephesians, um, that he opens up a lot of what, uh, what should our understanding of the church be. So we're going to look deeply into this letter. And last week, Alan started us off by giving a a big picture of redemptive history, the grand story of God redeeming the world and bringing those who have been separated from him through our sin back into relationship with him, and that one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Alan talked about the trajectory of where we're headed, and so today we're going to start to zoom in a little bit more into the local church as, as it is today, as we know it today, uh, to, get a, to get a clear picture of what it is. So we're going to start here in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesus was a city in what is modern-day Turkey. It was a port city, really important cultural city. 
And Paul, uh, you can read about this in Acts, went and started a church there and then uh, left there to plant other churches as well and, and wrote a letter back a number of years later to the church in Ephesus to remind them of some of the things that he had taught them and to continue to shape and form them as they, uh, as they live and learn to be the church. Uh, so the reason that we're spending time here as well is if we want to know what the church should be today, we need to go back to the source of, of the earliest churches, of the, the apostles and the churches that they started. And praise Jesus, he has given us his word uh, in the scripture for us to be able to go spend time in. So that is, that's where we are, Ephesians chapter 2. So now, Ephesians chapter 2 Paul starts with a, a, a description of the individual work of the gospel. If you have any background in church, if, you have, if you've been around the Christian church for a while, you are probably familiar with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. They are two of the most famous verses, most well-known verses. Uh, and so as we step into this, these verses, first of all, if, if they're familiar to you, I pray that you, would, that you would press into them even more deeply. Sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, and so let's, let's ask the Holy Spirit to open open up the, the depth and the power of these words even more uh, powerfully for us this morning. And if, if, if this is a new passage for you, if these are new verses, well, we've got something great in store for you. This is some good news that is on your doorstep. So Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is a summary of the gospel. Um, The gospel means good news. And the summary of the gospel, the heart of what we believe as Christians, upon which all the rest of our theology and belief and being is all built on, on the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul summarizes it here by saying this, that you have been saved. You have been saved from sin. He says earlier on, in, back in verse 1, that, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That that's the description of life pre-Jesus. Dead in your trespasses and sins. So then, unable to save yourself and in a state of no life. That, and you have been saved. You have been rescued. You have been granted salvation from that death, from separation from God, from shame, from confusion, from a hopeless existence, from the very grave itself. You have been rescued from this peril by Jesus Christ in his work on the cross, in his victory, in his resurrection, in his ascension to the right hand of God and to his giving of the Holy Spirit and his promise of coming again, you have been saved. And that Paul says you have been saved by grace. So grace is the initiative of God to forgive and restore. It's his initiative, not due to your worthiness, but out of his great love and mercy, Paul tells us here in chapter 2 of Ephesians, that God is great in mercy. God is great in love. And when you were in that state of death and your sin, sin and trespasses, he took the initiative to come and rescue you out of his merit and his righteousness. So you have not earned it. 
It says, in that we take, play, take part in that grace, that, that free gift from the Lord. We receive that through faith. So in other words, not everyone has received that grace. Not everyone takes part in that. Not everyone has been saved, but those who receive it through faith. When we go back and we read in Acts of, of the apostles preaching this same gospel, and the people respond, well, well, what should we do? If all that you say about Jesus is true, what should we do? And, and they say back in Acts chapter 2 and elsewhere, repent, believe, and be baptized. To repent, to turn away from our sin of which that has brought death to us, and to believe, to put our faith and trust in the God of the universe, the Savior of us all, to repent and believe and to be baptized, to be brought into the church. You are saved by grace through faith and not by works, not by your merit. There is nothing, hear this clearly, there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more and nothing you can do to make God love you less. God's love is not dependent upon your goodness and your merit. It is based on the grace of Jesus Christ that is a free gift. This, this is what makes us rejoice. This is the greatest news that the world has ever heard. This is what makes us praise. This is what makes us weep. This is what makes us be in awe of the goodness of our God. This is the gospel. By grace you have been saved through faith. What if I told you, as good and as great and as amazing as that is, That's not it. There's more. There's more to it than just this. In our hyper-individualized culture, we oftentimes tend to stop reading here. And we develop a faith, and we are taught a faith that is very individual. It's my Jesus, my heaven, my Bible, my joy, my salvation, my prayer to Jesus, mine, mine, mine. But that is not the complete gospel. Although, yes, you as an individual have to respond in faith. Paul's message is not, say a prayer to accept Jesus in your heart, and then you're just fine until you die. And then you're going to go to heaven. And so you can be assured of that too. That is is a shallow version of the gospel. And there's so much more. Paul starts to talk here as soon as he moves through the individual work of the gospel in our lives. He starts to move into the corporate work of the gospel. And when I say corporate, I don't mean business. That's not what I mean. When I say corporate, I mean togetherness. I mean a group of people. An us rather than an I. Because you see... We have to move away from a an an hyper-individualized understanding of the gospel because that is the faith that leads to a disconnected and lonely existence. That the burden of faith is on your shoulders. The burden of belief is on yours alone. You have to figure things out. It leads to theological error because when we think it's my Jesus and my Bible and my prayer and my spiritual life and mine, 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 that we, uh, that we can oftentimes um, make uh, slop into error where we start to shape God into our own image rather than having God shape us into him. Our faith becomes a victim of our current emotions or cultural influences where we're pressured from the outside or from the inside and that we struggle 
in our individual faith. But remember, friends, the response to the gospel is not simply repent and believe, but repent, believe, and be baptized. You are saved from something to repent. You are saved from something. You are saved for something. Believe, and you are saved into something through your baptism. You're saved from sin and death. You are saved from all of those things that we discussed that Jesus triumphed over in the cross and his resurrection. You are saved for good works, not by good works. I didn't say you were saved by your own merit, but if you keep reading there after 8 and 9 and into 10, it says that you have been saved by grace, not by works, but that you have been saved for good works. In other words, you have a purpose now as well, not to just have free entry into heaven later on, but that your faith has a, has a temporal purpose now in this moment. And that you are saved into something. You are saved into a people, a family, an inheritance. Your salvation is not individual, and neither is your life in faith. And before you start to bristle up a little bit at that, I know that those are, can be strange words in a culture that talks about uh, the importance of you being who you are going to be, and don't let anybody else tell you what who you are going to be. But that has brought about the isolation that exists in our world right now. And the truth of the gospel is to say, you are a part of something that's bigger than you. And this is great, glorious good news. So look at what Paul says as he starts in in verse 11. He says this, and I'll explain these words because there's some complex ideas here and some words that we don't use very often right now, so stick with me. Verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God, in the world. So, remember, in the last section, Paul talks about the individual work of the gospel, and he starts off as, let me, let me take an inventory of where you were before the gospel. You were, verse 1, dead in your trespasses and sins. But then, if you look at verse 5, he says, post-gospel, post-good news, because of Christ, we have been made alive in Christ. So, you were dead, Now you are alive. Now he starts talking corporately. You used to be, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. Okay, so Gentiles, Gentiles are not Jews. That's basically what Gentile means. Okay, not the Jewish people. And the mark of being in the Jewish people was circumcision. And so you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. And he said, so you used to be, Uh, apart from the people of God in Israel. And he says that we're alienated in five ways. You can see them listed right here in verse verse 12. He says that that we used to be separated from Christ, alienated from the people of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. That's five. There are five ways that we were alienated. And that Christ has come to reverse all five of these ways of alienation of which we used to live and experience and be. 
um, that one, that you were separated from Christ. We've discussed this already, that our sin separated us from Christ, um, but that he, in his great mercy, reached out to us in grace to save us to himself. Now, number two says that we were alienated from the people of Israel. Well, why is, why is this important? What does Israel have to do with us? Well, if you read the Old Testament, the whole thing, which makes up the majority of the Bible, when you read the Old Testament, you will see that Israel was God's chosen people. That of all the peoples of the earth, he chose this nation to be his nation. That he said to them, uh, I will be your God and you will be my people. And everyone else was outside of that relationship. Okay? Now, this continues to be important because, as it says in verse 3, you were strangers to, I mean, sorry, in number 3, of, uh, in verse 12, that you were strangers to the covenants of the promise. A covenant is, a, is an arrangement, an agreement, um, a, uh, an understanding of this is my role in the relationship, that's your role in the relationship. It's defined in many ways, um, but summarized by saying God, God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he made a covenant with Abraham. Okay, you can read about this in Genesis chapter 12, 15, all around in there. And he promises this guy, Abraham, who will become the father of all of Israel. He starts out by making a covenant with Abraham. And he says things to him like, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you into a great nation. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll give you a a land of promise, what is called the promised land. Um, And I will be with you as your God. These are... These are unbelievable promises, amazing promises of his presence, his provision, his salvation, his protection. And that because this is to Abraham and all the generations that would follow him, that the mark of the covenant, of being in the covenant people, was circumcision. And so the Israelite people were the bearers of this covenant and the ones to whom all of these promises belonged. And he says to the Ephesians, who were not Jewish people, you were alienated, strangers to the covenants of the promise. And you and I, today, most of us are not ethnic Jews. And so therefore, we were alienated from the covenants of the promise. And then he says, because of this, You had no hope in the world, and you were without God in the world. There's no guaranteed trajectory. There's no promise of God's presence. And so this is the alienation in which we lived, okay? So that's the way, just like before, he said, you used to be dead in your transgressions. Now you're made alive in Christ. Now, corporately, you used to not be a people, that you were a Gentile, you were Gentiles and separated from God and his chosen people and his promises. And then, of course, the pattern continues where he says, but now, look at verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. So you used to be these alienated in this way, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now Christ has changed this reality. So hear this, friends. Paul is telling the story of salvation, of being saved, of belonging to God, not strictly from an individual standpoint of your heart and your faith and your, you go to heaven, but of us, that we are a people. 
That God has done something not just in you and me, and then we're next to each other, but he's done something in us. We, the we of our faith is extremely important. Now, due to time, I don't, have, I don't have the time to be able to go into each individual verse of what all Christ did, but you can read it in, in verse 14 through 16 about how um, Jesus covered the, the things that separated us from the people of Israel and the covenants, that he abolished the, the wall of hostility, it says. He covered the law with grace, that, that he reconciled us to one another and God. And then very importantly in verse 18, he says that we now have through Jesus, have access to the Father in the Spirit. So a very Trinitarian understanding of the work of salvation. And so because of Christ, we have been brought into the people of God. We are now people of the promise and that we have access to God. This is the good news of the gospel that's not just individual, but corporate. Look what he says in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. But now you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You used to be strangers and aliens. Now you are in a kingdom and a family. There's a we aspect of the gospel that is vitally important. He says that we, um, that we are a part of the household, of a family with all the saints. And the saints are all those who, who belong to God through Jesus Christ. All those who have gone before, all those who will come in the future, all those that are now. Some are, are um, already in the presence of Jesus, and they're still a part of this family that we are a part of. Some of us are here in the flesh, in person, in the church, but we are still a part of this family of God, the table of, of our family meal that we share here every Sunday extends far back into the past where all of those who have gone before sit at the table and it extends far into the future of the wedding supper of the Lamb when all those who are redeemed will gather with Christ Jesus. That is our family table. He uses this kingdom language, this family language, this this language of love and of order and of provision. Through the gospel, we have become a people just like the Israelites, the people of God, the covenant people, but not brought together by our ethnicity or our geography, our relationship to Abraham, but rather it is Christ and our faith in him that what Paul says later on is circumcision of the heart. That our faith has, has cut away what is no longer needed, what is, what is keeping us separated from God. That Christ has brought us into the chosen people of God. And all of the promises to Abraham were fulfilled in Christ. The promise that, that, uh, that he would make Abraham into a great people. Well, through Christ, all, Paul says in Galatians that through Christ, everyone who believes in Jesus becomes a child of Abraham. And so all of us who are in the church are all a part of the grand people of God. So the promises of God to Abraham have, 
Abraham had been fulfilled in Christ. The promise of Abraham of blessing. Well, the Messiah has come. The anointed one has come through his line to be a blessing to the world. The promise to Abraham of a land. Well, it's not just a political state in the ancient Near East, um, but rather it is, it is the kingdom of God itself, a new heavens and a new earth. The promises of God have been fulfilled even more than we could ever have asked for or imagined in Christ Jesus. And we as the church are a part of this kingdom in this household. And Paul then uses an analogy of a building when he talks about this household. He says, this household is defined, it's created. Verse 20, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In other words, our house, this household of God, is built upon the word of God. It's built by, on his truth, on his revelation of who he is. It's not for us to make up. It's not for us to create. It's not even up for us to discover. It is, us, it is up to us to listen to the revelation of God as he taught through his apostles and prophets and in the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. If we lose our moorings in the word of God, we, we undermine the foundation of the household of God and it will crumble. We have nothing without the truth of God in his word. And that Christ himself is the chief cornerstone, the one who bears the weight of the strength of the church. Look, as he continues, verse 21, he says, In whom the whole structure being joined together, so on this foundation of the apostles, prophets, Jesus as the cornerstone, the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so this is great for you grammar folks. This is a present progressive that is being joined together. So there's a process that God is knitting us together as his people in his name by his grace. This is, this is completely opposite of the idea of a hyper-individualized faith that's sort of like a, a bunch of redeemed stones all sitting around isolated in a field, but rather that he is bringing us together, knitting us to him and to one another and to all the company of saints all in one place to build a temple. And the temple was the dwelling place of God. Look at what Paul says in verse 22. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God is honored and present in the togetherness of the church. That means there is meaning in the corporate body. The Spirit is active in the corporate body of the church. God is present in the corporate body of the church. And Christ is the foundation of the church. This is a big description of what the church is. This is so much bigger than just, well, where do you go on a Sunday? What, do, what color is your building? There's so much more happening here that is, that is, that is cosmic, that is universal, that, is, that transcends time and space itself. What is happening in the church is more than just an inspirational service on, a, on one morning of the week, but that God is actively a part of his people doing amazing things and miraculously joining us to himself and to one another, bringing about the unity that we all want to see in this world. So in order to wrap this up, let me, let me give you some, some implications, some application of this. Okay, that's great, Dan, but so what? What do we do with that? Number one, I'll say this. 
The gospel is corporate, so being a Christian and being in the church are inseparable. It would have made no sense to any of the apostles or to Christ Jesus himself for anybody to say, I'm a Christian, but I don't, I don't really do church. That's not my thing. You can't say that. You cannot be a part of Christ without being a part of the church. Listen to this, that, that uh, Cyprian, who, St. Cyprian, who's an early 3rd century bishop, he said this, he said, No one who forsakes the church of Christ can receive the rewards of Christ. He is a stranger. He is profane. He is an enemy. No one can have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. It was as possible to escape outside Noah's ark as it is to escape outside of the church. Now, his words may seem harsh at first hearing, but he is using such passionate language to communicate an unshakable and extremely important truth that Christ died to fulfill the promises of God. And these promises are given to the people who belong to him. They're given to the people, not just an individual person, but the promises to the people of God. And the way that we belong to him is by grace, through faith, to repent, believe, and be baptized into the church. So the promises of Christ are given to the church. And when we're a part of the church, we receive the benefits then of Christ. So the church is not man's idea, but God's idea. It's, it didn't just, some, some folks come together and say, wait a second, wait, you believe in Jesus? I believe in Jesus too. Maybe we should hang out together. How about Sunday mornings? Like, that's not how this thing started. Christ himself initiated this. God himself in the Old Testament creating a people for himself. This has been God's plan all along, a redeemed people. And that is the church. And friends, this is great news. It is a gift. That salvation is not just individual, but that it, is, that it is corporate. It is a gift from Christ that salvation means that you are a part of a family. That you will not sit alone in front of the throne of Christ, but you will be gathered with a throng of people who share your love, who love you, who love your Lord together. We cannot live an individual faith now. When heaven itself is going to be a corporate experience. And you get to know that family now. You get to experience that family now. Even as flawed and as broken as she may be, those who are dependent upon grace come together in an organization that is dependent upon grace. So one, the gospel is corporate. So being a Christian and being in the church are inseparable. Number two, rejoice because your faith is not yours to bear alone. Your questions, your struggles, when you think your faith is weak, it is okay to depend on the faith of others. It can be so demanding when we feel like that if I'm feeling weak, that I might be on the edge of losing my faith. What if it's not your faith to begin with and that we're all holding it with one another? When you are lame and you cannot reach Jesus, your friends will break through the roof to lower you down. When you no longer have the strength to believe, you do not have to fear, for there are others who can believe for you. You don't have to panic and reject your faith. This limits your power. You don't have to understand everything or even get everything or even like everything or even have everything figured out, but to be a part of the people of God. 
And not just the people who, who surround you when you're able to gather physically in place here, but all those thousands of believers, millions of believers who have gone before. So press in then, not only with your devotion and individual prayer, but in community with others, even in the midst of pandemic. Um, gather with folks digitally. Be a part of these services as it is safe and appropriate. Get together with folks in your church and who share your faith. And lastly, a couple of things. Let's raise our standards for what is happening in our public worship. And when I say public worship, I mean when we are able to gather physically, but then also as we gather together online. There's Through the miracle of technology, we can be together even when we're not together. And so raise your, raise your standards of what you believe happens at these public gatherings. Our times together are more than just inspirational fill-ups to try to get you through the week until next week. That there is truth and power that shakes the very fabric of the universe when we gather together as the people of God. Ignatius of Antioch was a first century bishop and he was being taken to Rome to be martyred. And on the way, he wrote a number of letters, one of them to the people in Ephesus, the same people that Paul wrote this letter to. And he said this to them, the first century, these people in Ephesus, he said, take heed then often to come together to give thanks to God and show forth his praise. For when you assemble frequently in the same place, the powers of Satan are destroyed, and the destruction at which he aims is prevented by the unity of your faith. Nothing is more precious than peace, by which all war, both in heaven and on earth, is brought to an end. What he just said is that worshiping together, recognizing the sovereignty of God, submitting ourselves to Christ and to one another, shakes the very halls of hell itself. The powers of Satan are destroyed, and the destruction at which he aims is prevented by the unity of our faith. When we gather together in the name of God, the universe itself is shaken. And if you want to see change in a culture, if you want to see a world healed and it feels like it is out of control, that it feels like there's nothing you can do, there is things, there are things that you can do. You can gather together in worship, whether it is online or in person, to be able to join your voices with those who love Jesus, to, to pray and to worship and to recognize the sovereignty of God in this world, and that Satan himself quivers in fear when we gather together in this way as the church. That is what happens when we gather as the family of believers. Let's raise our standard as to what Sunday mornings or any of our other worship services are about and what we do. Lastly, I'll just say this. This is a teaser for the upcoming weeks. We have not only a shared identity, but also a shared purpose. Where we are, this is who we are as the people of God, but what are we here for? And over the course of the next few weeks, we will unpack this. So for now, rejoice. Ponder anew the community around you. Passionately engage in the life of the church. Take the heavy burden of a life of faith off your own shoulders and let others carry it with you. And worship, worship to to shake the very halls of hell. This, friends, is the church. This is what the gospel has done for us. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that, that the, through the miracle of technology, your 
word can reach us even when we are forced to be in our homes. And I pray for all of those who are watching this service and engaging in this service, wherever it is that they are, that they know your presence, that they know that you are close and intimately connected with them, even as some of them are chasing kids around on the ground and all of the other things that are happening in the midst of this, that you are in the midst of them. Let them know, Lord, that they are not isolated from the communion of saints, from their body of their church, but they are loved and that they are gathered and connected miraculously by the power of your spirit. Let them know that they are not alone in their faith, Lord, and renew in them a passionate hunger for you and for your church and for those who do not yet belong to you and your church. And give them an extreme confidence and hope that there is hope in this world because you have a church in this world and that they, through your gospel, are a part of your people. Lord, bless them, fill them, raise up Redeemer as a city on a hill and a light for your name. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.